Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire. So this is actually an episode on the French pullout from Mali. We recorded it a few weeks ago, I think, we actually recorded it the day before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, when that happened, we put this on hold to cover the Ukraine war. But we wanted to put it out now. It's still very relevant. It's not yet clear how the war in Ukraine is going to impact the Sahel, which, as we discuss in the show today, is another flashpoint in competition between Western governments and Russia. It's unclear what the war means for the presence of Russian private military contractors from the Wagner Group in the Sahel. It's not clear what a major crisis in Europe means for European policy in the region. What is clear, though, is that even as much of the world's attention shifts to Ukraine, there's a lot to be worried about in the Sahel and also in some of the coastal states along the Gulf of Guinea. So we thought there was still good reason to get this out. Later this week, we'll have more on Ukraine. We're going to look at the fallout from the war on the Iran nuclear talks. We're going to look at some of the changes in geopolitics around Venezuela's crisis. And we're also going to look at the dangers of the Ukraine crisis escalating into a wider confrontation between Russia and the West. Uh, for now, though, I hope you find this episode on the Sahel and France's role in the region useful. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. On the 17th of February, French President Emmanuel Macron announced that France would end its almost decade-long military presence in Mali. Today we're going to talk about what that decision means for the Sahel and the fight against local al-Qaeda and ISIS-linked militants. This is Macron speaking about his decision. We cannot stay engaged militarily side-by-side side with the de facto authorities with whom we do not share strategy nor objectives. That's the situation we're dealing with in Mali today. The fight against terrorism cannot justify everything and must not, by using a pretext of being the ultimate priority, turn into an exercise of indefinitely maintaining power. It also cannot justify an escalation in violence by using mercenaries whose violent acts are documented in the Central African Republic and whose use of force is not in line with any rules nor convention. 
The French have been fighting in Mali since early 2013. Back then, French and Chadian troops, in an offensive known as Operation Serval, ousted Islamist militants from towns they had held for the previous year or so across northern Mali. That operation created space for a peace process in the north and the deployment of a UN peace operation. The French replaced Serval with Operation Barkhane, which at its peak boasted over 5,000 French forces, combined with air power, including drones. Most were based across northern and central Mali, though some were based in neighboring Niger, and as violence spread to Burkina Faso, moved there as well. Mali's army-led government has expelled the French ambassador and demanded the immediate departure of both French and European forces. On the streets, the mood among the government's supporters is clear. If France wants to leave, it must do so immediately. No question of four or six months. We don't need France. France has been with us too long. Get her out. French relations with the Malian government have grown increasingly tense, especially since coups in 2020 and 2021. The junta now in power in Bamako, led by Colonel Asimi Guaita, has defied pressure from the West and from neighboring countries to set a firm timeline for a transition. Military leaders have bashed France in particular, and there's been this swell of popular anger at the French, partly due to Operation Barkhane's failure to curb violence, and partly stoked up by disinformation, spread by people including some close to the junta. Mali's military leaders have also edged nearer to Moscow, apparently signing a contract for the security company the Wagner Group to fight jihadists in the desert. Those were the mercenaries we heard President Macron refer to. In essence, as relations deteriorated, France may have pulled out troops, announcing their departure over the next four to six months before they were actually kicked out by the Malian government. So what comes next? What will the French pullout mean for the Sahel? And with violence soaring and no sign jihadists will be beaten back anytime soon, how should we assess nearly a decade of French operations in Mali? We're going to talk about this today with Ibrahim Yahya Ibrahim, Crisis Group's senior Sahel expert, and Richard Moncrief, who's currently standing in as our Sahel director. Ibrahim, Richard, welcome back on. Thanks for joining. Thanks very much for having us on. Thanks for having me. So could we start by, Richard, perhaps you could just sort of tell us exactly what the French decision entails. So the, the announcement made by President Macron came on the eve of a Europe-Africa summit. Uh, and after a meeting in the Elysee, very kind of French orchestrated and French led, but uh, the French made sure to pull in European and African partners into the meetings uh, and then into the press conference and associated them with the announcement, let's say. The basic detail is that the French uh, announced pulling out all troops from Mali, and that the Takuba Task Force, which uh, is uh, a military force composed of European and Canadian troops not attached to the EU, would also be pulling out. There's also an EU training mission, just to make it more confusing. Uh, that is attached to the EU, and no announcement has been made on that so far. It's a big announcement. French presence in the Sahel uh, has been centred on Mali ever since, as you mentioned, Richard. They went in 2012-2013 to stop uh, the jihadis advancing uh, and eventually kicked them out of main cities outside Bamako. And of course, the French have uh, the equipment, intelligence, overflight, drones and so forth um, to operate. Uh, on the ground in a way that few African armies uh, could do. So it's uh, it's definitely big news on the ground. 
We'll talk about the implications for some of the other security forces in the region. But could you just sort of describe a little bit more, uh, Ibrahim, sort of exactly what French forces were doing in Mali? The French uh, major role is conducting counter-terrorism operations. They have essentially uh, conducted their operations in the northern regions, uh, including Kidal, Gao, Tumbuktu. They have had um, occasional operations in the central regions too. But their focus on counter-terrorism actually complement uh, the effort of the UN peacekeeping forces, uh, which is the MINUSMA, which uh, focuses on civilian protection and does not do counter-terrorism uh, operations. Now, officials in Paris have not provided details on the overall result of Borkan's operations, but newspapers in, in, in France have compiled numbers based on the analysis of Borkan's announcements, according to which an estimated 2,800 presumed jihadists were killed uh, by Barkhane in the last nine years. Um, Barkhane also succeeded in eliminating key jihadist leaders, in, uh, in, including the top ISGS, uh, which is uh, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, the ISIS branch in the Sahel, um, who's Adnan Abu Walid Saharawi. Today, uh, the ISGS is quite decapitated and uh, struggles to form a new leadership again. Uh, and uh, also, out of the five founding members of Jinim, which is the Al-Qaeda branch in the Sahel, Jamaat Nusrat al-Islam al-Muslimin, um, among five of its founding members, Abarkan has eliminated three. And one, Hamadun Kufa, narrowly escaped uh, an airstrike. And not to mention other, um, like Abdul Malik Drukdel, etc., the top uh, commander of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, who was also eliminated uh, by Barkhane. Although the jihadists have suffered losses uh, that I mentioned, uh, they have shown incredible resilience. Uh, uh, the situation fits what some observers have described as mowing alone, only to see the, the loan grow again. Now the question is, what happens uh, now when we lose the capacity uh, to mourn the loan again? And so, Ibrahim, I mean, that's the, the operations themselves. As you say, there's been some sort of special forces operations and, and drone strikes that have killed a lot of militant leaders. Are there French bases? What sort of numbers of troops actually in Mali are we talking about? So at its peaks, I think the, the Barkhane mission has had uh, 5,100 uh, troops on the ground. And it had um, several uh, military outposts, including, I think, three that it closed a few months ago and the three others that are opened uh, that might be closed uh, in, in the coming month uh, as they announced uh, the, the total withdrawal of their troops. So, Richard, if I could ask you, as you said earlier, this is a big deal and a big development on the ground. What are some of the immediate implications of a French withdrawal? Thanks, Naz. Well, um, firstly, uh, the French uh, really have centred their operations over uh, the last decade, really, on Mali. So uh, pulling those troops out, um, they, they're going to redeploy them into other areas. Some will just be reduced. The French have had a plan to reduce their presence in the Sahel for uh, around about a year. Uh, they hoped to rely on local forces and other partners such as the EU. Those plans haven't particularly come to fruition, but nevertheless, the French are going to reduce their overall number of troops in the Sahel. Pulling out of Mali means they're going to focus security and diplomatic efforts on neighbouring states. So that's the first one. Um, the, the wider implications uh, also touch on the United Nations. The United Nations has a large uh, peacekeeping mission in Mali. 
our understanding is that some of the units within the UN force depend uh, to a fairly large degree on uh, French support, whether that's intelligence sharing, uh, evacuation of wounded, field hospitals, and so forth. So I think the French pullout actually poses quite a big question for UN operations. I don't think we're anywhere near, uh, you know, the, the UN pulling out. Um, the UN can uh, uh, remain present in Mali, but it really poses some questions as to how they're going to operate with this large French presence withdrawn. So when you say focusing on regional uh, countries and neighbors, does that mean that there could also be ongoing operations into Mali, but staged from outside the country? Uh, That's a really key question. Thanks, Naz. Um, I've been talking to a few uh, kind of insiders who have been trying to get a grip on this, and it's not clear. And I don't think the uh, decisions have actually been made at the moment we're speaking. We can easily imagine a scenario where a group of jihadis uh, perhaps, um, you know, kill some people or are spotted by the French within Niger or Burkina Faso, uh, where the French do operate both on the ground and in the air, and they then cross the border into Mali. What happens next? Do the French chase them? Um, Do the French try to deny them sanctuary, the other side in Mali? Uh, That's really not clear. I think what is clear is that even if that were to be the case, it would be limited. And that's why people are talking about a security vacuum in Mali, or at least uh, a reduction of of security in Mali, uh, and wondering whether jihadis could spread uh, in Mali in light of that. So, Ibrahim, Richard mentioned uh, some of the potential implications for the uh, UN forces. What does this mean for the G5 Sahel force, Uh, the regional security arrangement among Sahel countries, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mauritania and Niger? Well, first of all, um, the G5 Sahel Joint Force has struggled um, uh, since its creation and uh, to prove its relevance, um, uh, its effectiveness, mainly due to problems uh, in its conceptual framework, um, the lack of funding and operational capacity. Nonetheless, they have been able to conduct um, operations, a few of them, um, uh, mainly in the area, in the so-called um, uh, three-border area, the Liptaku-Gurma area. Now, the French uh, troops withdrawal is also going to undermine the G5 Sahel. Uh, most of the G5 Sahel's operations, which I mentioned, are conducted jointly with Barkhan. Um, uh, they mostly rely on uh, aerial support from the, the, the French uh, to, to transport some of their, their, um, their troops. That They also rely a lot on intelligence coming from the French. And they also rely on, on, on the French for medical evacuation of their troops that are wounded on the ground. Um, so, but this is uh, only one problem of the G5 Sahel. The coup in Mali, um, and in Burkina Faso, uh, and, uh, also the, the transition in Chad have also undermined, uh, the G5 Sahel's political framework. Um, now out of the five countries, uh, that, that form it, only two have a stable and legitimate, um, uh, regimes. Recently, when Emmanuel Macron and uh, Richard was mentioning that, when Emmanuel Macron held the meetings in, in the Elysee, uh, only three of those leaders were invited because the two others, the Malian, the leader of the, of, of Mali and Burkina Faso were not invited because they are juntas. Uh, but one could also ask the question why, uh, the Chadian, um, uh, leader was, was invited to this. 
um, and also the foreign military of the three countries um, find difficulty to align their views. So there is a clear diplomatic crisis in addition um, to the, 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 the defense and security crisis that is undermining the work of, of the G5 Sahel. And what happened, the withdrawal of Barkhane is only going to add uh, to all these um, challenges that are facing the G5 Sahel Joint Force. So let's talk a little bit then about the politics of Macron's decision. So part of this seems to be about French domestic politics, where Macron faces elections in the coming months. Lots of questions about what the French are doing in the Sahel. But still, he has until recently seemed sort of very invested in the fight against militants in Mali. This didn't seem like the way he was he was leaning, at least until this bust up with Bamako. I think the French have made the decision on the basis uh, both of its relations with Mali, which have been deteriorating for a while, and also domestic politics uh, back in France. Uh, as concerns relations with Mali, uh, when the military took power in 2020, um, they, they weren't bad. The French felt that uh, they could work with the new military authorities in Bamako, who uh, had a fair degree of support uh, in that context back then. Um, however, in the course of 2021, Several things happened which uh, started to turn that relationship between Bamako and Paris rather sour. Uh, the first is that the military uh, performed another coup, and, and this time it was to get rid of civilians who were becoming, uh, let's say, a bit too independent uh, and, and therefore tighten their grip on power. Uh, it became more and more obvious as 2021 uh, you know, wore on that the military junta in Bamako were not intending to uh, hold elections as they were originally planned early this year, um, and were intending to hang on to power. And I think that was the uh, the first uh, element. Secondly, and I think this is vital, as we mentioned in the intro, the authorities in Bamako invited uh, Russian paramilitaries into their country. Now, of course, we you don't need to follow global geopolitics very closely to know that that's not going to uh, please the French. The uh, president of Central African Republic uh, did the same. That's been discussed on a previous podcast. And I think that was key in uh, the swift deterioration of relations um, in December 2021 and January 2022. Uh, things then came to a head when the military junta in Bamago presented a transition plan to uh, their West African colleagues, which uh, kind of implied that they wanted to stay on another five years. It wasn't entirely cut and dried, but that was the implication. And West African colleagues of the uh, ECOWAS regional organization reacted very negatively to this and uh, imposed some fairly stringent sanctions on Mali, which are still in place as we speak. And Paris supported this. Um, So at this point, the Malians uh, thought they would uh, go double or quits, as it were. Um, The diplomatic tone deteriorated very much leading to the Malians expelling uh, the French ambassador at the very end of January. So uh, this comes on the back of a severe diplomatic dispute. However, there's more to it. There is domestic French politics, as you imply, Richard. Uh, The French troop presence in the Sahel um, has uh, met with growing scepticism among the French public. Um, We have presidential elections in France in a couple of months Uh, All of President Macron's uh, rivals have criticised French presence in the Sahel. And I think Macron 
as you suggest, Richard, he, he doesn't want to pull out of the Sahel. I think he feels that France has a mission in the Sahel and that fighting terrorists is the right thing to do. Uh, it's part of uh, France's role as a great power in the world as, as it's perceived in Paris. But he needs to either be able to credibly say to the French public that uh, this troop presence with the great cost, including cost of French lives, has brought some benefits, or he needs to start to say that we're pulling out uh, and we're therefore going to reduce the cost. And Richard, so you spoke a little bit about the French public, but what about the public in Mali itself? I mean, there has been this sense, I mean, it's across the Sahel, but particularly in Mali bubbling up this sort of anger at the French presence and accusations by the French that this is sort of being stoked up, whether it's by Russians, whether it's by the, the junta. How much has that informed decision making in Paris? Um, I think that uh, the the military authorities in Bamako are both drawing on, but also, as you suggest, stoking up um, anti-French feeling. Um, they see uh, protests in the street that involve this strong anti-French element, and that gives them an opportunity to play a nationalist card. And of course, they also um, quite rightly question uh, what heavy French military presence in Mali for 10 years has brought. Uh, given that jihadi presence has uh, increased uh, certainly up to 2020 and violence has increased in that period. So there are some legitimate questions. And then there's also uh, a rather populist nationalist card being played by the authorities. Um, so I, I completely agree with what um, Richard said about um, the, the junta playing uh, a, a populistic and um, nationalist card. Um, you mentioned the anti-French sentiment, and this goes way back um, uh, before the, the, the junta came in. Um, I, I think it is one of the things that uh, contributed to the demonstrations, the massive manifestations that we saw against President Ibeka, uh, which led to, to his ousting. And then the junta came in, and they also um, exploit uh, this anti-French sentiment. Um, one of the challenges of the junta is to legitimize itself. Um, and um, there are not many things around, in particular when they are, t- they are making decisions that appear very unpopular in the eyes of other uh, political parties and the civil society actors, tapping on this um, uh, anti-French sentiment, which brings them a lot of popularity, really. I think that uh, as they show defiance uh, to France, uh, we have seen their popularity grow again. Um, uh, people on, on social media, but also in the street in Bamako, so I, I do think that they, they, they do play on, on this card, on this populistic and, and nationalist card to, to improve uh, the, the, the legitimacy. So another thing is that um, the Europeans also have, have uh, taken some tough uh, positions vis-a-vis the junta, um, uh, particularly the decision that the junta made um, uh, to bring in the Russians, to extend the transition um, period. Um, and this uh, contributed to exacerbating um, the relation between the two. Uh, we really saw some unusual um, languages that were used uh, on the side, um, I think injurious languages that we saw between um, the, the French uh, authorities on, on the one side and the, the Malian authorities on the other side. Um, so I, I think that also contributed to it. The third uh, thing that to add is um, perhaps there is also a belief among the Malians uh, that the French are playing uh, both hands. 
Um, let us not forget that some of these colonels have been on the ground um, for a long time, and they have been, uh, particularly as Migueta was on the front line when the French prevented um, the, the Malian uh, military to enter in Kidal in 2013 after they liberated um, uh, the northern part of the country. And this is a matter of a lot of anger uh, among the Malian military, but also among the Malian populations uh, in, in general. And sorry, Ibrahim, just so people understand, that was back in 2013 when the French spearheaded efforts to oust jihadists from northern cities. But why did the French stop Malian forces entering the northernmost city of Kidal? I mean, from the, the French side, uh, they explained it by saying that they, they feared that the, the Malian armies will commit um, atrocities and exactions against civilians um, uh, because of also these um, uh, tough feelings between uh, northerners and southerners. They saw uh, some of, uh, of, of those exactions happening in central Mali after the, 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 the Malian armies um, uh, took over the center. This is the way that the French explained it. On the Malian side of the story, they, they, they think that um, this is a manipulation by France to try to divide the country um, uh, because there have been these accusations against France trying to to support some of some uh, separatist rebel groups, etc. So support some of the non-jihadist rebels, basically, who are, in essence, Tuareg separatists. Some of those separatists had aligned with Islamist militants, but then they'd sort of fallen out with them. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, uh, so so you, have, you have got those two narratives. But even if the junta is to some degree tapping, to some degree stoking sort of anti-French sentiment, it's still a pretty big step, what the junta's done. I mean, there's been other governments in the region. I mean, the Burkina Faso, the, there's just been a coup in the Central African Republic. President Tuadera, Richard, as you said, has also invited in Wagner. But in none of those other countries has the government taken such a confrontational stand, you know, in, in the Central African Republic. Tuadera has tried to balance his relations with Russia and, and France, with Russia and the West. This is still quite a big step for a government in the Sahel to take against, you know, a, a long-standing partner, France, and against some of its Western donors uh, that have that have been partners with the Malian government for many years. Uh, well, it's an interesting question, Richard, because on the one hand, this withdrawal of the French isn't a great surprise given the breakdown in diplomatic relations we've seen over the last couple of months. But on the other hand, it is hard to explain at some level why the authorities in Bamako have constantly gone over one red line after the other and taken this confrontational approach. One wonders, I think, whether the invitation to uh, Russian paramilitaries to enter the country has given them some sucker and given them uh, a kind of push to uh, take that position with the French. Um, But as you suggest, it's likely to cut them off from one of their major funding sources um, and uh, create uh, big security problems. Because uh, even if the Russian um, force comes in, they're, they're not going to be able to do everything that the French do. They may be able to do other things, uh, but uh, they'll be limited in number uh, and facing the same very uh, widespread and very difficult to manage uh, threat. So it, it does remain somewhat uh, uh, hard to explain. And I think that makes it difficult to see where it's going to go. Right now, uh, the authorities in Bamako are holding low-level negotiations with their West African colleagues, and that's the first step towards uh, a kind of a less confrontational diplomatic position on the part of Bamako. But those remain very embryonic, and we really don't know where this is going to go next. 
I don't have a, a good answer either to why they do what they do, um, except to mention also that um, uh, they have managed carefully their diplomatic relations with the neighboring um, countries, in particular um, Saudi Arabia. So Saudi Arabia imposed those tough sanctions on them, uh, but still they have been, um, at the same time, they have severe uh, their, their relations and their language vis-a-vis France and the European countries. At the same time, they have uh, softened a little bit their language toward uh, the neighboring countries, asking for dialogue to try to come to modus vivendi that, that will um, uh, help to, to lift the, the sanctions and come back to, to a normal relation with uh, the neighboring countries. Uh, so I am afraid that in some ways, the populistic nature of this regime is... It's what is driving these tough decisions, because among the, the local people, uh, it is more popular to defy France than it is to use um, a tough language vis-a-vis the neighboring countries, etc. So perhaps this is what, what is driving it. And Sadao, that's ECOWAS, the uh, sub-regional bloc. Yes. There is evidently a popular hostility towards France. And I think there's a, also a level of uh, confusion or a lack of understanding, which derives from the different positions that France has taken Um, As you mentioned, uh, France have backed uh, a peace agreement and a peace deal with non-jihadi armed groups based in the north of the country. And that's led some people uh, in Mali to claim that the French are looking to divide and rule and divide up Mali even, partition the country, as it were. At the same time, the French are very hostile to any move made by local governments to negotiate with jihadi groups. Uh, There have been some local and low-level moves to negotiate. Um, In addition, uh, a lot of Malians, a lot of Sahelians as well, look back to the the Western role in the uh, Libyan civil war even 10 years ago and and see that as the one of the root causes of the troubles uh, that their countries face. And indeed, uh, the Malian uh, military authorities, straight after the 17th of February announcement, they made their own announcement, which was, uh, you know, fairly aggressive. And it did mention the French and um, British role in Libya as uh, being a factor in pushing arms and fighters south into the Sahel and being one of the causes of the problems. Could I ask you to tell us a bit about how other Sahelian states view the pullout and, and also view this, this very confrontational um, disposition that we've been talking about? Well, West Africa and the neighbours of Mali, most of them, not all of them, uh, in the ECOWAS sub-regional organisation are also in a big dispute with the authorities in Bamako. It was interesting when uh, President Macron held a press conference in France after the meeting, that he had alongside him uh, President Okufa Addo uh, of Ghana and President Macky Sall of Senegal. Uh, in their roles as regional leaders, Macron wanted to put forward uh, a, a point of view that France's dispute with Mali uh, was also Africa's dispute with Mali. Now, of course, uh, both ECOWAS and the African Union have quite strongly held principles about constitutional government. Uh, And they've been pressuring the authorities in Bamako to come up with a realistic timetable to return to constitutional rule. They're also, of course, concerned uh, purely out of self-interest, particularly in light of uh, the uh, coup at the end of January in Burkina Faso. Uh, They're concerned that their own militaries don't start to get ideas, uh, the civilian governments in Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana and so forth. The neighbouring countries are directly neighbouring countries. Of course, they're concerned about how do we contain the jihadist threat. If 
the, the French pullout in Mali allows jihadis to spread their influence, in particular in areas bordering Burkina Faso and Niger, which is already uh, where they have their strongholds, then I think that that's, at a, at a very basic level, very worrying for the authorities in Niamey and Ouagadougou. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, Ibrahim, let me come ask you a, a related question. Uh, one of the things Macron talked about when he laid out the plans for the French withdrawal was shifting French attention to the Gulf of Guinea. And we know that some countries in that region, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, and Benin, have seen jihadists make inroads into the north. Can you tell us a bit about how we should understand this aspect of, of the French strategy? Uh, yes, I, I think um, uh, France is not uh, willing to leave uh, the region altogether. Um, they consider this as an episode um, uh, in which uh, they have um, this misunderstanding with the Malian government, but this is not a reason for them to um, you know, withdraw completely from a region in which they have invested um, for, for, for years. Also, at the same time, there are countries in the region that look at um, the role that France is playing and see it um, uh, constructively. On the Gulf of Guinea uh, countries, um, recently, I think just last week, uh, there was an attack against the um, militaries in, in Benin in the Park W, one of the areas where the jihadists have been moving in uh, strongly um, over the last um, few months. Uh, and then the, the uh, French forces uh, replied to that and killed um, uh, dozens of jihadists there. And this shows to the Benin government that um, the, the collaboration with France uh, could be very helpful um, in terms of countering um, the, the, the push of jihadist groups toward um, the, the Gulf of Guinea countries. Uh, and I think also similar attacks happened in, in northern um, Cote d'Ivoire uh, and uh, signals of jihadist settlements in, in northern Ghana and northern Togo. So um, I think these countries are also looking um, to ways with which they will try to, to prevent um, this uh, push. And France can help them toward um, preventing that um, uh, spill over into their, their own territories. That's the Gulf of Guinea. And as you said, there's been this sort of jihadist expansion south over recent years. But what do you think the French pullout is likely to mean for the sort of balance of force kind of on the front lines in Mali itself? I think uh, you're right to talk about balance um, uh, because uh, currently what we have is a mutually hurting stalemate between both sides, you know, in, in the sense that uh, you have um, both sides inflicting heavy losses uh, and uh, none being able to defeat the other. Um, but, but this mutually hurting stalemate is only there because of um, France joining force with the, the, the Malian forces. Uh, now that the, the big player is, is moving out, uh, it is likely to undermine, at least in the short term, counterterrorism efforts, and particularly in the northern regions. Um, you know, the, the French will continue in the next month. What we will see is the French moving out from um, uh, from outposts that are uh, located in the heart of jihadist um, uh, strongholds. And this will leave a lot of uh, room for maneuver um, for jihadist groups uh, in those areas. Second, one key contribution that uh, the French brings is air force capacity, uh, which is extremely important and um, which uh, I think the Malians, they do not have um, that force and, and they do uh, need it. Most of the jihadists that were kind of eliminated, um, uh, they did it via airstrikes. Also, there is, there is intelligence gathering via the drones that they deploy. And these are capacities that are essential, uh, but that are lacking on the Malian side. Um, so 
whether the French will continue to do these airstrikes is, is so far um, not settled yet. But this is a big news um, for the jihadists. Pushing the French and other international forces out of Mali has been the first and the foremost objectives of, of the instruction um, uh, in almost all their statements. Um, the jihad, the, the, the Jinim, uh, has mentioned that objectives comes even first um, before the Sharia implementation. Um, uh, so this is a planned victory that that, um, uh, that they will uh, capitalize on, uh, I think symbolically, to show how um, they have been able to win over France, but it's also likely to boost the morale. Uh, perhaps I will make one last point. This is not another Afghanistan scenario. We're unlikely to see a quick and rapid jihadist takeover um, in Mali. On the one hand, because um, uh, JSEM is not the only player um, uh, in the entire Malian, Malian territory, it is, um, uh, I think it competes with many other armed groups, um, uh, whether separatist groups, whether communal militias, um, uh, that, that are also occupying um, uh, uh, part of, of, of this terrain, and that could be. I think um, uh, countering any push that may come from Geneva after this withdrawal. The second thing is that we have seen over the last few months um, a sort of uh, morale boost among the Malian army um, in the sense that they have conducted several operations in which they have won um, uh, quite good victories over jihadist groups. And, and this hints that perhaps over the, 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 the next few months, we will see uh, more of those operations. And the third, uh, because of the Russians, we, we so far don't really know how the Russians um, are coming in, um, what, what role they will play, are they going to be effective? So it's not going to be a quick um, run over um, from the jihadists to take over the capital city of Bamako, just like the Taliban's did in Afghanistan. And uh, Ibrahim, so also over recent years, there have been, as you talked about earlier, these some sort of moves towards dialogue, maybe between Jinim and Malian authorities. And both sides have given signs, I mean, somewhat erratically, but both given occasional signs that they could be willing to at least open lines of communication. And as you say, the first condition Jinim has set is that uh, the French forces need to pull out of Mali. So, I mean, is there a potential opportunity now for dialogue? Could the French departure open a door to that? Um, yes and no. The jihadists have conditioned uh, the French withdrawal, uh, but not only the French withdrawal, but the other international forces withdrawal in order to uh, engage in dialogue. Including the UN? Including the UN forces. Um, now, the French are, are withdrawing, but the UN forces are there and a new international um, actor is in, uh, which is the Russians. Um, uh, perhaps um, we will see another statement saying that there's no dialogue until, uh, you know, the UN withdraw and the Russians also. Um, uh, but it is actually uh, striking that so far the Jinim has not put any statements um, uh, regarding the Russians. Concerning the, the rapport de force, Richard, uh, I think that um, the withdrawal of the French troops will uh, create some chaos in some areas. There'll be a realignment as the different uh, fighting groups uh, seek advantage. I think it's it, it really important to underline, as, as Ibrahim has, that the jihadis are not the only, uh, the only parties to this conflict. Uh, there's a lot of community self-defence groups um, who are fighting back against jihadis across the whole of the Sahel, including in Mali. Uh, and also that the jihadi groups have been fighting between themselves and quite a lot of the casualties uh, over just over recent months have been have been due to that. So we're not going to see a situation where uh, a coherent 
group of jihadis simply take over places that the French once dominated. It's it's not going to be as simple as that. It's going to be a lot more messy. However, the the rapport de force will tip a bit in favour of jihadis. Um, I think that that's true. We'll have to see how the Malian forces, the Malian army, step up. Could the French withdrawal facilitate negotiations? Because as we've said, the French have been very uh, hostile to negotiating with jihadi groups. I think right now that's difficult to see uh, because the the military uh, in Bamako have presented uh, their dismissal of the French as a way to allow Malians with their new allies to get a grip of the security situation and to take the fight to jihadis. Uh, that's in the short term. Uh, I think in the longer term, as things pan out, as a, a balance of force becomes more uh, readable, let's say, to both parties, uh, I think we could see uh, some negotiation taking place. And that's something Christ Group has been calling for for a long time. And maybe just a quick follow-up to that, because, I mean, it's such an important point that the violence between Islamist militants and the army or the G5 Sahel supported by the French, it's really just sort of one form of what's become very pervasive violence across the Sahel. And actually, intercommunal violence, which tends to be very local, it's often sort of interwoven into the fight between militants and their enemies. That actually kills more people than clashes between the Malian army and, and jihadists. And that intercommunal violence, that's violence the French have traditionally not gotten involved in, particularly in central Mali. But would the French pullout have any impact on that? Yeah, I suspect it won't impact that too directly. As you mentioned, Richard, the French wanted to stay out of that. And the French always considered their efforts as primarily uh, anti-terrorist um, operations. Uh, so we can likely expect that kind of violence to continue in Mali and in neighbouring countries. Um, so, so just to complement that, um, uh, the, the French have not been involved in central Mali where the intercommunal violence spiked. Um, and uh, that's because the Malian government did not want them um, uh, to go that far. The, the Malian government wanted to keep them um, in, involved in the fight in the north. But over the recent uh, years, we, we already have seen some reduction of intercommunal violence but that was due uh, mostly to uh, local negotiations uh, between jihadist groups and uh, the local communities. So the, since uh, I think the second half of 2020, um, some of the areas uh, in which actually Cross Group um, uh, uh, wrote about, um, where we, we saw uh, some sort of lull um, of violence um, due to those negotiations locally. And that tended to continue um, just to make sure that we do not um, uh, as the junta might try to do, we, we do not relate the lot of violence that we saw in these areas to the French withdrawal, because this is actually what the, the junta is trying to promote, that after the French um, went uh, from Mali, um, uh, everything um, uh, started to go in the right direction. So let me ask uh, the, the impossible final question, which is to to ask both of you to reflect on uh, the legacy of 10 years of Barkhan in Mali, uh, and importantly, underscoring the point that both you, uh, Ibrahim and Richard, have made today, which is that Barkhan itself is not necessarily over in the region. But uh, how should we understand um, how should we understand what this 10 years ha- has meant and, and will mean for Mali moving forward? Richard, let me come to you first. Sure. Well, 
certainly the French military presence in, in Mali and indeed in the Sahel for the last 10 years um, hasn't, uh, it hasn't been successful on its own terms. Let's, let's start there. Uh, it was intended to push back jihadi groups and uh, restore uh, state authority uh, across the region. And on all those criteria, it, it's failed except for having eliminated a number of jihadi leaders, but that hasn't actually uh, reduced their presence and reduced the violence, uh, unfortunately. I think we do have to say that the, uh, the task is uh, perhaps more complex than uh, the French and others thought it was 10 years ago. The territory is vast. As we've mentioned, jihadis are um, embedded in and, of course, exacerbating uh, in, in many places um, tensions and violence that exist between communities, uh, which makes the problem even harder to tackle. Um, so I think we have to kind of say that in their favour, as it were. But I think there's another uh, important element, which is despite uh, some pronouncements uh, concerning tackling the development problems and the poverty that these countries face, remember we're dealing with some of the uh, absolute poorest countries in the world, in fact the French approach has been absolutely dominated by the military. And perhaps when your tool is a hammer, all the problems look like a nail, uh, and that the French, uh, by leading with military, uh, have attacked jihadis, but have not really thought through a broader political strategy, uh, which might tackle some of the deeper issues that the countries are facing, uh, and might eventually open the way to negotiating with jihadi groups as part of a wider strategy. I do agree with, with what Richard said. I, I would just add that um, I think that the Borkans, um operations over the last 10 years have been mixed. Um, let us agree that they were able actually to eliminate um, uh, quite a bit of, of, of jihadist groups, um, uh, including top leadership. But this have not prevented uh, jihadist groups from expanding, um, and this has not uh, prevented violence from intensifying. Um, just look at the numbers. Uh, I think when the jihadists came in, started uh, the, in 2012, they only occupied northern part of the country. Today in Mali, their violence affects um, three quarters of the country. Not to mention that they have spread over Burkina Faso um, and now uh, trying to put their footprints in the Gulf of Guinea countries. Second, uh, we have also seen the figures really uh, rising incredibly high of this intercommunal violence, um, which even though it is calming down in central Mali, but it is getting uh, really uh, higher in Niger and in some part of Burkina Faso. Um, now, as Richard was mentioning, uh, the problem is also one of uh, a bad diagnostic of, of the problem. Most of them thought that this is uh, related to, th this is, this can be solved, um, uh, militarily. Uh, th this is about ideology and, uh, you can only fight ideology by using, um, uh, you know, uh, uh militarily means, um, uh, to take out, uh, some of those bad guys that are spreading that ideology. Um, they have, been unable uh, to think of this problem as being a political problem and in particular to produce ideas about how to address it politically. I think this is where they failed. Uh, and now there are blames uh, that are being thrown at one another that uh, the, the French are saying that it is um, local governments that have been unable um, uh, to deploy a new form of governance to occupy some of the places that uh, the, the, the French have liberated from the jihadists. Um, but also on the other 
other side, the other, um, uh, you know, government um, saying that those places have never been um, freed from the jihadists in the first place. Um, uh, so I think what has been lacking is this effort to uh, develop uh, a strategy uh, to address the problem politically uh, so far. And still, this remains uh, a major problem. Ibrahim, Richard, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work, including on Mali and the Sahel, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, and to Finn Johnson. And thanks, as ever, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch if you have any questions or comments. Leave us a positive rating or review if you like the show. And we hope you'll join us again in a couple of days for that episode I talked about up top on some of the fallout from Ukraine. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.